Welcome to the 10th Muse podcast. We're your hosts, I'm Helena. And I'm Siobhan. And we're here to tell you all about the women through history that we think deserve the coveted title of the 10th Muse. So hold on, what does the 10th Muse actually mean? Well, in Greek mythology, there were nine muses who were goddesses of poetic inspiration, who influenced the greatest creators and philosophers through history. The famous philosopher Plato once called the female poet Sappho the 10th muse because he believed her talents were so great that she was worthy of that title. That's right. So we're here to talk about a unique collection of women through history that have done amazing things. From activists to artists, scientists to singers, these women are not the women you already know. No. Instead, these are the women who we think should join Sappho's ranks and deserve the status of the 10th muse. We hope you enjoy hearing about these women as much as we do. Hello, welcome to the first episode of The 10th Views. I'm Helena. I'm Siobhan, and let's get straight into it. So, my first muse is a war correspondent called Martha Gellhorn, who is not well-known at all, hence the reason I've chosen her. She is known potentially more so because she was Ernest Hemingway's third wife. However... She made a real big point throughout all the time that she was, you know, being interviewed in her writing. She never wanted to be just another footnote in Ernest Hemingway's story. Mm -hmm. She really was passionate about her work. And so because of that, she wanted that work to speak for herself. She she never wanted to be Ernest Hemingway's just wife. Just the wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. She was she was Martha Gellhorn, the famous war correspondent. Um, she lived a really, really interesting life. So... She was born on the 8th of February, 1908, to her parents. Um, her dad, George, was very publicly progressive and he was a gynecologist, so very interested in you know, women's health. Her mum was a feminist um, and was a big advocate for disenfranchised people. She fought for women's suffrage and child welfare laws and free health clinics. So, like, proper head of the curve then? Yeah, definitely. Um, she took Martha to um, a feminist um, women's suffrage rally when she was only eight years old. So they were big, a really, really progressive family. And obviously, kind of, I think having that background, it gave her the confidence to really pursue her own career. Well, yeah, I think if you grow up like that, you inherently just think of it all as normal. Yeah. And kind of expect the same from everyone else I mm -hmm. think. you don't really have limits put on mm. you because you're not kind of you you don't have that paternal like that maternal kind of limit on you yeah um but yeah so she was really amazing when uh she kind of was getting into her writing she she decided to do um a journalism course at college however she dropped out because she didn't feel like she needed that to become a writer because she was already having some articles published and so after having a few articles published in the US, she moved over to Paris when she was only 22 and worked as a foreign correspondent at the United Press. However, she was fired because she refused to sleep with someone for a pay rise. Oh. So, example right. one of how she's a very great feminist. Mm -hmm. um, we are very here for it. However, it's, you know, a, a massive blow when you're just getting into, mm -hmm. you know, your, your career and someone wants you to sleep with them for a pay rise. Um, but she didn't do it, and you know she lived in Paris for a while after that and was just kind of living the life, very romantic life in Paris. Eventually moved back to the US. All through the 30s, obviously, there was the Great Depression, and there was huge levels of poverty, devastation for like many, many families. And um, 
At the time, President Roosevelt had created an organization called the Federal Emergency Relief Organization. <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, do you want to, you know, tell the listeners what that was? Oh, no. She's testing my American studies knowledge. Um, nope. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Ignore that. Well, um, I, so the Federal Emergency Relief Organization um, basically reports on the disease and poverty uh, that was caused by the Great Depression. So Martha was out kind of interviewing five plus families, you know, a week about their their life, their status, you know, how with all the disease and the poverty. Because um, she was really, really interested in the personal stories. Yeah, I think that's what's interesting about the Great Depression and like that whole era is that you kind of, the assumption is that it just hit like the richest people the hardest when obviously like any sort of, economic crash in any kind it hits the poorest the worst and yeah you find that a lot of sort of journalists at the time and photographers especially have like really interesting work from that time because they went out and spoke to like the normal people um mm -hmm. and that's my american studies knowledge for you then. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no so she she did that for a while her articles really caught the attentions of um the president and his wife eleanor and she actually became quite close with Eleanor Roosevelt. They often like exchanged letters. And actually, after a year or so of working for this Federal Emergency Relief Organization, she was actually fired for inciting a riot <laughs> uh, after protesting the unfair treatment of the workers at this organization. So this is fired by the, the kind of people running the organization, mm -hmm. not by like the president. So the Roosevelts were actually quite sympathetic to her. And they wrote to say that she was welcome to come and stay with them at the White House. Right. So this, you know, getting fired from her job to going to live at the White House. So then she actually House. went and lived at the White House. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, okay. So the, the people in charge um, at the organization were um, dismissed because, you know, the president thought it was really unjust and really hypocritical that they're writing reports on the poverty and disease and, you know, that was caused by the Great Depression amongst um, the working class to then treat their staff and their workers um, really, really bad and have really unfair treatment there. It was really hypocritical. So Martha moved into the White House. As moved, you do. Yeah, casually. <laughs> um, I wish. She stayed in what would later become the, Lin the Lincoln bedroom. Mm -hmm. She stayed there for about two months and she was an uh, helping Eleanor Roosevelt answer mail and helping her write her column. And it was there that she actually wrote her first book called The Trouble I've Seen, uh, which is about the suffering that she'd seen and reported on through the Depression. It was published in 1936. And she, uh, yeah, she was really interested in, you know, the human stories. That same year, she met Ernest Hemingway at a bar in Florida and they hit it off very very quickly their, their writing styles were very similar although Hemingway didn't necessarily know her face or her, her she he knew her writing right he'd read some of her articles and um, actually read her book and so they they hit it off very quickly they both wrote with a kind of no frills mm -hmm. descriptive kind of tone in which, you know, they didn't want to hold back and cover up the kind of truth to people's stories. So they hit it off. He went to work in Spain to work on a documentary that covered the Spanish Civil War that was going on at, the, at that time. And she followed very soon after because she'd got a contract writing for Collier's magazine, which had sponsored her to go out and cover the Civil War. So that was kind of, you know, some of the first kind of war correspondence experience that she had. So 
they had an affair over the next four years. Um, oh, hold on, hold on. Yeah. So, so one of them was already married. Of course. <laughs> Hemingway, obviously, right. Martha was his third wife. Right. So at this time, mm-hmm. they had an affair while he was still married to his second wife, right. Pauline Pfeffer. Um, who he'd also engaged in an affair with her when he was married to his first <laughs> so wife. So I'm sensing a pattern there. Yes, for the, Mr. Hemingway. the pattern does not end here. No, oh great, <laughs> that's a bit of a spoiler alert. Uh-huh. There. Yeah, spoiler. Okay, um, sorry, listeners. <laughs> so you know they were very happy, living you know a very lovely, fun life in Spain, drinking, you know, having a great life with their reporter friends, and obviously producing amazing work. The couple moved to China for a while where they covered, um, well, where Martha specifically covered the events of the Second Sino-Japanese War. And she also covered the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia and Finland from there too. So that's kind of her first foray into the European conflict Mm -hmm. that was coming. I was about Um, to ask whether she was sort of tapped into that. Because you said her first book came out in sort of 1936. 36. So she's right in the White House as sort of everything's building up. On a well, scale. just you wait. Oh, more to come. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. You're for jumping you. again. I know. Sorry. Let sorry. me let me get there. Let me get there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, they're out in China. In 1939, Hemingway bought this massive estate in Cuba, where they they as a couple did it up. Um, it was a beautiful house. It's still um, open to the public now, so you can go and look around it. However, it doesn't have any trace really of Galhorn, and it's more to do with Hemingway. Did we expect any different? Did we expect any less for the women <laughs> to get a raise? No. Um, so, yeah, in 1939, they bought the estate in Cuba. He divorced his second wife, Pauline, so that they could get married, Martha and Ernest. Um, mm-hmm. They married in 1940. So this kind of, their relationship begins to change from this point onwards. Hemingway begins to become a bit jealous with his previous two wives. They were quite content with you know, being the stay-at-home kind of wife mm-hmm. that Ernest could come back to because he was he was an adventurer. He loved to travel and, you know, do things on a whim, which that was the kind of side of Martha that he liked because she was the same as a war correspondent and someone who needed to get out and, you know, talk about the stories of the people in different places. His previous wives were, um, you know, at home being mm-hmm. the, the kind of the wife like mistress of the house Mm -hmm. and so Martha Martha was not like that at all she didn't want to you know give up her life as a war correspondent she didn't want to have children with Ernest and you know Hemingway began to become quite jealous um, and frustrated that she wouldn't settle down so as the second world war began to escalate in Europe she was sent to London by Collier's magazine, mm-hmm. which um, she was working for at the time. London was completely devastated by the Blitz. And Hemingway at this time, it's, you know, this this quote is so emblematic of Hemingway. <laughs> okay. um, I'll brace know, myself. Hemingway had sent her a cable saying, are you a war correspondent or wife in my bed? Right. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, the answer's war correspondent well yeah exactly (laughs) Exactly. it was um you know as you know i've said so many times she was she felt it was her duty to to record people's lives because she thought that in 
war situations, if there was only silence and if, you know, she wasn't, she didn't care that her writing might not have had any, you know, big significance, it didn't have to be groundbreaking as long as it was there and it, as long as it was a record. Because she said if there was only silence, then history could be rewritten by anyone in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So it meant that all the perpetrators of the great atrocities of history could completely yeah. rewrite it. Absolutely, yeah. She also, she said, let me find my quote, I've lost it. There we go. I was reading an article in Town and Country magazine, which done a, a massive kind of like long read about um, Gellhorn. It was really, really interesting. And there's a quote from Gellhorn said, beneath the battle statistics lay people. Mm -hmm. So that was why it was really important to get to the bottom of kind of, you know, people's stories. Because mm -hmm. you, you can have like a certain number, say X amount of people died on, you know, the first day of the Somme. Yeah. But what was it actually like? What did it yeah. mean for the people at home? I think that's key in like any conflict. We mm -hmm. don't necessarily look at it that way. That like every single person's got like, you know, at least a member of family or you've got to sort of place them in the home setting, I think, for people to actually think it makes an impact. So. Yeah, definitely. Which um, is, is wrong, but that's just, I think, how it is. Yeah, mm, yeah no, true. Quite amazingly, um, so she was doing writing all this stuff she's doing really amazingly she secured a press pass for collier's magazine um to report on the d-day attacks at normandy and uh, she was friends with roald dahl um who'd helped to secure sponsorship to get her plane tickets so sponsored by the raf again in peak hemingway jealousy oh here we go um he was absolutely furious and demanded the magazine give him her press pass and uh, tickets. So he's he's not liking that Rolls on, on the He's scene. not liking this at all. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, he waltzed in there, right. went, give me Martha's press pass. I'm Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, mm. you know. I and they said, okay. No. Yeah. Stop. So they... No, they didn't. No, they did. Well, it's Ernest Hemingway. I, know, I mean, but still. I know. It's, it's awful, but, like, you know, from the perspective of a huge... Ma of, like, a magazine. Yeah. If, you know, the greatest writer of, you know, the pre-war um, period, you know, if, if he waltzes in and says, oh, I want to write for your magazine, you don't say no to that. That's just... Yeah, but that's mad. So they had their arm twisted, which meant Martha was completely, you know left out in the cold she she wanted to she she was desperate to get there mm. and of course she didn't stop they didn't yeah. stop her so she was coming over to she had to get to england first yeah to get to europe she dressed up as a nurse and sewed away in the bathroom of a munitions ship coming to liverpool this is all while hemingway was flying to paris and was proceeding to get drunk and started another affair <laughs> where he joined a group of journalists who wanted to liberate his favourite bar in Paris, the Hotel Ritz. Mm -hmm. um, As you do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so when she got to England, um, she had to think pretty fast. She didn't have a press pass, so she couldn't go with the press. She had an expired one, however, and so she flashed that when um, the military asked her what she was there for, pointed at a big ship that she saw, which happened to be a, a Red Cross hospital oh. ship. And she said she was there to interview the nurses. And they and just worked. They just waved her through. <laughs> when, did, when can you ever show an out-of-date ID? And it worked. Incredible. Oh, amazing. Incredible. An inspiration to us all. <laughs> I can't cope. So she was successful. She got on the ship. She found another bathroom, oh, yeah. locked herself in again. I mean, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Don't fix she it. She knows it works. A locked bathroom and just an expired press pass. <laughs> 
can't what more do you need? Wow. Yeah, so she, she stayed in there all through the crossing to, to Normandy. This was like the D-Day crossings. Mm-hmm. You know, she was completely terrified, one, of being caught because she would have been arrested. She was, you know, terrified of being bombed as she crossed the channel. But also she was incredibly scared of what would happen when she got there. She had no idea what to expect. So when she got there, she was incredibly seasick, just had to get out and get straight into the the melee. She really helped the nurses. So instead of just hanging back and being, you know, being a journalist, writing about what she was seeing, she was um, a stretcher bearer. Mm-hmm. So she, she jumped into the sea, she ran ashore okay. with the nurses and was like pulling bodies back. And it's, it's really, you can just imagine like not knowing what to expect, not yep. feeling good as it is, feeling terrified and just jumping straight into that absolute horror, mm. you know, in amongst dead bodies, you know, just like limbs. getting on with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely incredible. And all the while she was doing this, she realized that all the, you know, journalists with press passes, they were all in boats off the shore. Right, just watching. Looking it all through happen. binoculars. <laughs> so she was the only journalist on Omaha Beach at the D Day landings. The only journalist. And the only woman. Yeah. That's um, aside yeah. from the nurses. That's amazing. So you know, it's really incredible. After D-Day, you know, she was all noting down everything that she saw so she could write um, her articles and reports for after this. So after D-Day, she travelled through Europe to Dachau and she was the one of the first journalists and definitely the first woman at the liberation of Dachau. She said she could smell the rotting of the corpses as they were all around her. You know, she saw and, ho- and heard all the horrors firsthand and she flew back to England with a group of prisoners of war who they they didn't look out the window as they they flew over Germany because they couldn't bear to look at it mm-hmm. and um they said no one would believe us and she was she said well I'm going to you know I'm going to write about everything mm-hmm. that I've seen so I believe you I've seen it myself and that was kind of why she was it was why she was there yeah she could tell these people's stories so after everything she'd seen in Europe she kind of decided that the petty fights that she'd had with Ernest it just wasn't worth it anymore. Mm-hmm. So as soon as she got back to the US in 1945, she divorced him straight away. She was <laughs> Go on, girl. <laughs> the only the only one of Ernest Hemingway's four wives to divorce him. To divorce him. Yeah, that's that's her like that's just like another claim to fame there for her. I love that. Bit of a bit of a kick in the teeth to yeah. Ernest Hemingway. I'd, I'm sure he didn't appreciate that. Mm. So she refused to talk about him in interviews, saying, "I've got 40 years of journalism experience mm-hmm. under my belt. Why should I be a footnote?" in his life, mm-hmm. um, as I said before. So she continued to write and cover lots of conflicts. At one point, she visited an orphanage in, in Rome that looked after children that had, like, missing limbs. They were blind. They, you know, all because of stepping on landmines, and there were lots right. of, like, landmines in, in Italy um, after the war. It really hit her hard, and even though she'd not intended to have any children, she wanted to adopt one of the boys called Sandy, Sandy right. Alexander. However, it was quite difficult to get an Italian child back to the US. So she used her friendship with the Roosevelts again to try and kind of expedite that Mm -hmm. and make that happen. She wasn't the best mother. We'll be there. She loved him. Yeah. She was, she was, you know, she was a caring mother, but she was very busy and she didn't obviously want to fulfill that traditional motherhood role. Well, she didn't want it in the first place, did she? So, well, exactly. Um, So for a lot of the time, Sandy stayed with her parents and eventually he went to boarding school. But, you know, in 
testament to how much she did love him. She left everything to him right. when she died. After divorcing Ernest, she kind of lost faith with love for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, she had like lots of strings of affairs, some with more married men. And eventually she married the editor of Time magazine, T.S. Matthews, for nine years. And they had a marriage between 1954 and 1963. It just broke down eventually because... Again, she couldn't be the stay-at-home mother. Work was more important to her than mm-hmm. anything else. And so she eventually just lived out her, her life as a single woman, you know, working. She covered basically every, like, every international conflict of the 20th century. She continued to report on many of the conflicts going throughout the world, through to Nicaragua, Vietnam, and um, her final war that she covered was the U.S. invasion of Panama. It was really the Vietnam War that kind of made her lose a lot of faith in the USA um, and made her kind of want to quit living in the USA for the final time. That's across the board in America. Yeah. Well, she was horrified by the way the US was spending, like, billions of dollars. I think at the time it was, like, a billion dollars a day on Mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, which would completely decimate humanity. But she was also horrified and disgusted by the... The way the soldiers acted mm. when they were out in Vietnam. The way they treated the locals. Yeah. Um, well, there's massive cover-ups, though, as well with Vietnam. And it all came out, you know, later on, and they were being sold this sort of, like, TV war of, like, oh, and the soldiers doing amazing, and then afterwards you hear about all these atrocities and, and what they did. It's, mm. it, I think it sort of disheartened, like, the entire nation on well, a large yeah. scale. Exactly. And so she moved to London and lived out the rest of her days in London. At the end of her life, um, she was going very, she was going quite blind. She didn't, she was, she was very active up until the end. She was still swimming and exercising Mm -hmm. really regularly. But she was suffering from ovarian cancer as well. So in a kind of last ditch attempt to kind of take life, you know, take, take matters into her own Mm -hmm. hands, really, as she'd done her whole life, she decided she wanted to commit suicide by ingesting a cyanide pill. Um, and left uh, everything in her will to her adopted son, Sandy. So that was the incredible life of Martha wow. Gellhorn, you know, right in there on the beaches of yeah, that's insane. Uh, DJ. Like right there in it. Right there in it, as mm. all the other journalists, including her husband, were just watching through binoculars. First female journalist at the liberation of Dachau. Mm. Incredible, like really, really yeah. inspiring. Well done. Thank you. There you go. That's our first tenth muse. So, that, yeah. so why do you think she should be a tenth muse then, other than everything you've just talked about? If you sum it up, she's so she's my tenth muse because she was so driven. She never wanted to, you know, adhere to social norms. She mm-hmm. never thought that she had to because her drive for um, her ambition for adventure and being able to tell people's stories was, you know, the number one for her. Love was secondary. She said that, you know, love didn't matter and only work remained, which is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And just just her willingness to get stuck in and to, like, go everywhere and do everything rather than... She had no fear. Yeah. Imagine... (laughs) Yeah, you can't. Blagging your way onto a Red Cross ship. And then being in the water, like... Yeah, you can't imagine it. That's absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she didn't let that fear stop her Mm -hmm. in order to... You know, she had a job to do, and so that was that was what kept her going. That she had this job to do, which was telling 
the, the real people's stories. So that's why she's my 10th muse. She's a really yeah. inspiring person. Amazing. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, well done. Thank you. <laughs> hope you. Hope you all enjoyed. And Siobhan, yes. tell me about your 10th muse then. Ooh. Well, listeners, I've informed Helena that I've gone a bit rogue this week. I don't know who this is. So we went into this. We didn't know who the other person had picked. So we've gone into this completely blind, which is quite exciting. It's, it is quite good. Okay, well, I have a question for you, first of all. Yeah. How much do you know about the golden age of piracy? I mean, <laughs> aside from watching Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> a lot when I was younger, not much. Um, so what I tell, I'm going to tell you about the most iconic female pirate, arguably. I'm so excited and, by and this. It's, spoiler, it's not Keira Knightley, Aww, sadly. She's um, an icon too. Uh, no offence, Keira, but it's, it's not. We love you, Keira. <laughs> It's not, it's not Gira. All right, well, so you've probably heard about Blackbeard and yep. his use of pyrotechnics and mm-hmm. all that mad stuff. I'm going to tell you about an Irish-American legend, and her name's Anne Bonny. And cool. she is probably one of the most famous pirates ever, but you've never heard of her because she is a woman. So that's why we're going to get into this. Exciting. So she was born around 1700. It's not kind of confirmed. They, there's a lot of arguments she was born in 1697. We do know she was born in County Cork in Ireland, mm-hmm. and she was illegitimate daughter of a lawyer called William Cormack and his servant, Mary Brennan. Oh. So she was sort of product of a, you know, not unlike a Hemingway relationship. Yeah. Um, so to sort of try and avoid his wife and her family sort of knowing that he was staying in touch with this illegitimate daughter, they moved to London, and um, he dressed Anne up as a boy, and referred to her as Andy, and had oh. her pose as a lawyer's clerk. So everyone in London sort of thought he just had this boy helping him in the in the shop. But sort of soon the wife found out that he was actually still in contact with his daughter and, and his sort of servant Ooh. that he had the daughter with. So when they were found out, they, they moved to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it's it sort of, again, contested whereabouts, but they, but they did move over there. And when she was 12, her mother sadly died. So, Class. and it's just her and her dad who weirdly dressed her up as a boy yeah. for a chunk of, of, of her life. So she's kind of described as having, she, she's, there's not a lot known about what she looks like or, you know, there's a lot of legends about her life, but she's described as having red hair and a fiery temper. Yeah, classic. Um, so, for example, she supposedly stabbed a servant in her house when she was 13. Wow. Yeah. Now, listeners, I'm not saying that all the women I'm going to talk about are good because essentially she, obviously she then, as you know, goes on to be a pirate. So she's not Mm -hmm. exactly the nicest person. skating outside the law. She's stabbing someone at 13. I think that kind of sums her up She's got issues. Yeah, well, her mum dies young. Yeah. I think we'll let her off a little bit. And she Mm -hmm. was hidden as a boy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So in typical kind of fashion, her father tried to marry her off to suitable men to try and calm her down. But she didn't like that. And, <laughs> you know what? She didn't. <laughs> um, so she eventually married a poor sailor called James Bonney, which her father didn't approve of. And I think James sort of thought he was going to have sort of a claim to her father's fortune. Oh, and right. instead, her, her father disowned her because she married this man that he just didn't approve of. He's like this penniless sailor. It didn't go down well with the dad. Yeah. Put it that way. Also, there's another rumour, like I say, not all of this is kind of completely 
confirmed. But another rumour is that after this happened, when she was sort of kicked out and disowned, um, she burnt down her father's plantation in retaliation. Wow. Um, yeah, Anna. And none of that can sort of be substantiated, but I think yeah. it adds to her legend. I think that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sometime around 1718, she and her new husband, James, moved to New Providence Island, which is in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of known as like a pirate sanctuary. It's called, it was known as the Republic of Pirates. Ah. So think Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I guess. Think yeah. like where they all gather and. The you Pirates go. <laughs> I think you should say that again. The pirates cold. That's brilliant. <laughs> but James Bonney wasn't actually a pirate. Uh-huh. He eventually worked for this governor called Governor Woods Rogers. Mm-hmm. His first name is Woods, just to reiterate. Right, okay, cool. Woods Rogers. Um, to help sort of crack down on piracy in the region. So essentially he was a snitch. He was like an anti-pirate. Yeah, I think he... Sort of, he started out in small-time piracy, but I think it was a lot more lucrative to kind Mm. of... Work with the government. Work with the government, help sort of get pirates arrested, which Anne didn't approve of because the pirates were probably a lot more interesting than her husband was. 100%. From the sound of things. I think she was enjoying their company a lot more because she mingled with the pirates in the taverns on the island and um, she, I think, as you can sort of tell from rumours about her childhood, it's more her sort of temperament. I think she was sort of yeah. enjoying mingling with them and having the freedom of sort of, I guess, drinking, gambling, do every pirates that, whatever the pirates are doing, yeah. really. It's in one of these taverns she meets the infamous pirate, John Calico Jack Rackham. I don't know that name. So Calico Jack, his name is. Oh, okay. Um, and he becomes her lover. And he offers... Anne's husband James money to divorce Anne and James is like no thank you I want my wife um, didn't really end well for him though because no. um, he basically lost a payday there because she leaves with Calico regardless hmm. and <laughs> becomes a member of his crew and Brilliant. so just leaves James is just off into the sunset he's, he's done when she was on the pirate ship she disguised herself as a man Again. A lot of the times, again, exactly. There's a theme running through her life, really. Only Calico knew she was a woman uh-huh. until she gets pregnant. I bet it's a way to stay safe as well. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of conversation about how would you exactly hide that you're a woman yeah. in amongst a load of men. I think maybe, you know, there's some theories that, you know, Calico kind of hid it because they were obviously lovers and that, or that maybe the crew actually just knew that it was mm. a woman, but that it's Calico Jack's woman, so you just don't say anything. Yeah. Mulan did it. <laughs> she, yeah, she pulls Mulan, really. Yeah. She's, uh, she's fighting with the best of them. But yeah, so she eventually gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then this part of the story is a bit weird. Okay. It's not a lot of, again, the general facts of her life are substantiated, but certain things people just don't know. They stop off at Cuba. So she can have the baby, which she does, but then there is no word on what happens to this baby. Right. Presumably she just left it there to be adopted or, you know, there's other arguments she might have brought on the ship, but that's probably not true. But presumably she just sort of left the baby in Cuba. Bless. Just has this baby and leaves it. And um, when she gets back on board, there's another female pirate on the ship Ooh. who is another quite infamous pirate name have you ever heard of any pirate women at all other I than Kira and I don't think <laughs> I don't know maybe if you maybe you say it to me so Mary Reed 
Yes, I have heard actually of heard of right, her. Yeah, so she's kind of more heard of, I think, than, yeah. than because she more successfully had like sort of disguised herself as a man for a lot longer. Right. It gets kind of interesting for Ant-Man because it's believed that her and Mary were in a bit of a romantic relationship. Oh. They... Supposedly, the story goes that Mary didn't know Anne was a woman, mm-hmm. and okay. Anne didn't know that Mary was a woman. Right. But then, when they were gonna, you know, get down to it, they had to tell each other that they were women. Yeah. It didn't stop them. They became lovers. Yeah. I mean, I I can't imagine there's much chance of variation in the seven seas. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. Then they they sort of know about each other, and obviously Calico Jack knows, and then there's a lot of theory that. Again, the crew didn't know that these two were women. Okay. But then it kind of goes all out of the, the window. They dress as men a lot of the time on board and they're sort of respected pirates. And I think because they were so willing to kind of get the hands dirty, the mm. crew just sort of respected them. And she, so she becomes, Anne becomes quite an infamous pirate. She even ends up on, you know, Governor Rogers I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, she ends up on his wanted pirates list. Ooh. that goes out in sort of newspapers across America and okay. the Caribbean. She's, she's definitely an equal crew member on board. And what's interesting is, like I say, they sort of both know of dressing as men, but female pirates, if you ever look up like these two women, if you if you sort of hear this, this episode and want to know what they look like, in a lot of sketches, female pirates are often depicted with like their breasts out. Mm-hmm. So the shirt is kind of open. And that's because apparently... How it goes is that they would open their shirts before killing a man to show that they were being killed by a woman. Oh, I like it. <laughs> so the sort of the ultimate kind of, I guess, end of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, <laughs> I'm no man. They, I am they, no man. Exactly. That'll be my sister. will love that shout out. But, yeah, um, yeah. So it's sort of it's like the ultimate kind of. Two fingers up. Yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm a woman. You've not fought well enough to beat a woman, yeah, which I'm yeah. sure in, like, sort of the, the golden age of piracy, which sort of, I, sh- I should probably date this, is around 1650s to 1730s. Mm-hmm. So it's like the earth, early 1700s. and It's being... kind of when the East India Trading Company was yeah, kind of that large. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Listeners, Helena has definitely seen Pirates of the Caribbean. I have seen Pirates of the Caribbean so many times. <laughs> She's definitely seen it. So yeah, so there's there's like loads of legends about when she was a pirate, but there's one that I think we'll all love to hear about, which mm-hmm. is that she nearly beat a man to death and put him in hospital for a long time because he tried to force himself on her. Yeah, and she was not having it. So I'm saying yes to beating him to death, not, <laughs> not yes to forcing himself yeah. on her. Don't worry, we all got that. Yeah. And sort of she played leading roles in the raids, and she wasn't afraid to sort of get stuck in. So she. You know, it was like a really impressive, cool. I guess, pirate career is what Anne Bonny had. Yeah. Again, people, I'm not condoning the violence that We're she... not endorsing piracy, but... I'm, uh... I'm not endorsing it, but I think you should hear about the most famous female yeah. pirate of all time. Or one of, there's, there's a few notable ones. In 1720, Calico Jack's ship was attacked and captured by a group of pirate hunters... They were captained by Jonathan Barnett and they were under commission from the governor of Jamaica. They sort of managed to get on board and fight. Now, (laughs) the interesting thing about this is that most of the men on the ship were too drunk to fight (laughs) because they were all sort of celebrating that they'd taken this big vessel in Jamaican waters, so they were all just drunk and then I guess these pirate hunters sort of saw the opportunity to get them and they were all too drunk. So only really Anne and Murray fought. On this mm-hmm. whole ship, the two women. The two women against how many? Would it have been like a small I mean, militia force? Pretty much. I mean, they Damn. want to capture the whole ship. We're talking quite big sort of vessels, yeah. Wow. Um, so only the two women 
allegedly fought, but the rest of the men were just sort of too out of it to, to get involved. Mm-hmm. So they were all taken to Jamaica and sentenced to be hanged, like the entire crew, yeah. everyone. And obviously the fact that they've caught Calico Jack is like a major deal. Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't going to be any mercy given to them. Yeah. Both Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed pleaded their bellies. So they basically said they were pregnant. Right. So that they wouldn't be hung till at least after the birth. Okay. So then this is kind of where it ends for, for Bonnie, but in a sort of interesting way because people don't really know what happened to her. Mary Reed, it's kind of confirmed that she died in captivity around this time. Like she uh, she either got sick or she died during childbirth. It's not really known, but it's known that she died. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Mary, I mean with Anne, sorry, there is no record of her execution, release or death, like nothing. Really? No one knows what really necessarily happened, happened to her. her. So there's, there's rumours that... Her father paid the ransom and so she went back to South Carolina with him and that she, there's rumours that she remarried some years later in London and just sort of got on with her life after being this pirate, yeah. pirate queen of the seas. Wow. It's not entirely known, like I say, um, what exactly happened to her, but I'm going to leave you with this part, which is that Bonnie's last words to Calico Jack mm-hmm. were supposedly as follows. Are you ready? Had you fought like a man, you need not have been hanged like a dog. Oh, burn. <laughs> it's, it cuts deep, that. Yeah, it does. Um, so, yeah, it kind of goes back to the fact that she would, like, obviously reveal herself to be a woman when mm. she's fighting. And, yeah, wasn't very impressed with Calico Jack after all that yeah, time. Yeah, I know. I um, can imagine. And that is, it's kind of a short version of, of Anne Bonny because there's not too much necessarily yeah. known about her, but... It's, it's, you know, the, the key facts are there. And um, she is one of the most infamous pirates that you've never heard of. That is really, really fun. <laughs> That's so cool. Pirate women are brilliant. Mm-hmm. Again, hashtag we stand Keira Knightley. <laughs> she um, just, there's a lot of love for Keira Knightley. I love Keira Knightley. What's her name in that? Elizabeth Swan. Elizabeth Swan. Mm, yeah. I mean, she is the better pirate, pirate of all of them. <laughs> Not Pirate Queen, Pirate yeah. King. You're deep in Pirates of Caribbean lore. Yeah, I want to watch it again. Okay. I've um, But that was super great to hear about Anne Bonny. Mm-hmm. She sounds like a really, really cool woman. And like, yeah, like I say, I mean, the sort of, I'm not condoning the violence, but I think she's my 10th muse because she, you know, of the women we speak about is that she's this strong, independent woman. She's like well ahead of her time. She literally, you know, she's not going to be controlled by what her dad wants her to do or, or you know, she could see herself being a pirate so she just went and did it and she was better than some of the men at it or most of the men really and she fought till the end you know she's a bit of a rebel rebel without a cause yeah (laughs) other than i guess getting money (laughs) i know i love i love the fact that she she showed her breasts and just before she killed Mm -hmm. them yeah like you're being killed by a woman yeah so so there you go deal with that that. yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly i love it no she sounds really really cool you can picture her however you want. If you want to envision her as Keira Knightley, that's up to you. But um, I she will. had fiery red hair, so I'm picturing more Egret from Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, that works. That works. Cool. I think that's that's yeah, that definitely works. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag yeah. sponsor us. <laughs> yeah. Game of Thrones. We'll yeah. advertise all of your <laughs> shows. HBO. Not that you need advertising. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's she's my tenth muse for this week. Brilliant. I, I really I'll do someone that. maybe a bit more serious next time. Okay, well, I'll do someone <laughs> a bit crazy then. But but don't hold us to that, because who knows? We might we'll not do. be. Yeah. 
Okay, so yeah, there are two tenth muses for this week. Join us next time for some more inspiring women that you've never heard of. We hope you really enjoyed this. You should get out and research these women. Martha yeah. Gellhorn, you know, read some of our articles. Yeah. And Bonnie, I'm sure there's like... There's some great books about female pirates that you yeah. should sort of check out. And yeah, I guess follow us on all social media. Um, like, and, like and subscribe. Um, I feel like that's a really cliche thing to say, but um, it's how we get noticed and it's exactly. how we get ratings. So mm. follow us on Spotify. I think we're on Apple Podcasts now Stitcher, as well. Stitcher, every, everywhere you can get podcasts, we're basically there. And um, yeah, write us some reviews maybe on Apple Podcasts. I know that's probably the only place you can really do that. But yeah, and we'll speak to you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.